So Numbers chapter 34, verse 1 through 5 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan to its boundaries. Your southern border shall be from the wilderness of Zin along the border of Edom. Then your southern border shall extend eastward to the end of the Salt Sea. Your border shall turn from the southern side of the ascent of Akrabim, continue to Zin, and then be on the south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it shall go on to Hazar Adar and continue to Asmon. The border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt and it shall end at the sea. So here God is giving the nation of Israel their boundaries as a country and as a nation for once they go into the land of Canaan and they have the promised land. You can look up maps online if you want a better idea of this uh, visually. Some of the things are difficult for us to gather today because it's a lot of brooks. It's a lot of, they call them wadis and small different bodies of water that have changed over the course of history. Some of the names here are big ones that we can get. The Salt Sea we know is the Dead Sea. Later on we'll see one that's the Sea of Galilee. The Great Sea is the Mediterranean Sea. So some of them are pretty easy to understand. One thing we can apply to our lives today is that God gives us boundaries in life. God just doesn't say, hey, have at it, do whatever you want, and I'll see you later on, right? He gives us boundaries in life. And here Israel was given boundaries in this new promised land that they were going to inherit. They were not to go on a military campaign where now they're trying to have world domination and take over the whole entire world. They were to live within the boundaries that God has given them. And within the boundary of the whole nation, God had given them specific boundaries for each tribe. Depending on which tribe you were born into, you had specific boundaries of where you would live and of your inheritance. And today, God has given us boundaries in marriage, in sex, when it comes to sin, in business, in friendship, in so many areas of life. God has given us boundaries. The question is, are we fighting the boundaries that God has given us today? Are you fighting God's boundaries today? Perhaps he said, hey, this is what I have for you. And you're sort of fighting that. You're wrestling with that. You're having difficulty with God. Sometimes we think boundaries is just someone that's trying to rob fun from us, right? They're trying to keep us from these things that we love and we desire. And God, he's just a fun vampire sucking the fun out of life, right? That's who God is. Or do we trust that he is who he says he is, a loving and perfect father? Because loving parents, they set boundaries for their kids. Right? Any parents here tonight? All right, a couple. Do you put boundaries for your kids? Right? Yes. Hopefully you put boundaries for your kids, right? Do you put boundaries because you hate them? Do you put boundaries because you're trying to rob and steal from them? Right? No. So why is it that when God puts boundaries on our life, when he says, hey, that's a sin, that's against me, that's against what's best for you and what's going to give you life and that abundantly, sometimes we get mad and we get angry. Right? When you pull into a parking lot with your kids, do you let them free saying, hey, there's no boundaries, have at it, right? Uh, yesterday we went to a shopping center we're trying to do some shopping and oftentimes when we open the car door I sound like a police officer making arrest to my kids 
right? Open the door. Hands on the car, right? That's what I tell my kids. Hands on the car, right? Spread them, right? Put your hands where I can see them is what I'm telling the three of them. Is it because I hate them? No, it's because I don't want them ran over by a different vehicle or driver that can't see them. And maybe you're in a season in your life where God is reminding you of his boundaries. Realize who he is. He's a perfect, loving father that cares for you and doesn't want to see you run over. That's who he is. He doesn't want to see you destroyed by sin. Verse 6, as for the western border, you shall have the great sea. That's the Mediterranean Sea. For a border, this shall be your western border. Uh, So for those of you that love living near the water, right, that's where you'd be wanting to live is the western border. Depends which tribe you are in. Verse 7, and this shall be your northern border from the great sea. It's the Mediterranean. You shall mark out your borderline to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor, you shall mark it out to the entrance of Hamath. Then the direction of the border shall be towards Zedad. The border shall proceed to Ziphron, and it shall end at Hazar Anan. This shall be your northern border. Now the eastern border was to go from Hazar Anan to Shephem. The border shall go from Shephem to Riblah on the east side of Ain, and the border shall go down and reach to the eastern side of the Sea of Chinnereth. That word Chinnereth in Hebrew is harp, and this is the Sea of Galilee. Some people, they look at it and it says it looks like a harp. So this is the Sea of Galilee. The border shall go along the Jordan and it shall end at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land with its surrounding boundaries. Then Moses commanded the children of Israel saying, This is the land which you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half tribe. For the tribe of the children of Reuben, according to the house of their fathers, and the tribe of the children of Gad, according to the house of their fathers, have received their inheritance, and the half-tribe of Manasseh has received its inheritance. The two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance on this side of the Jordan, across from Jericho, eastward toward the sunrise. Now we looked at this a couple chapters back believe it was in uh, chapter 32, where we see Reuben and Gilead, they are settling. They are settling. They're not gaining all that God had for them in their lives. They are settling spiritually. And what happens is that these tribes did not live in the promised land. These tribes, they lived in Canaan. And again, it's a warning for us. Are we living in the promised land that God has for us? Or are we settling spiritually and now we're living on the borders? We're the first to get attacked. We're the first to be taken away. We're the first to be destroyed. Where are you living? Another thing we don't have too much time to go into is that the men of these two and a half tribes spent seven years away from their children and from their wives because they decided to settle and not go all the way into the promised land. They also didn't want their children to be a part of the war that God had for the nation of Israel. So they decided to spend seven years away from their wives and children because they wanted to settle for what they felt was comfortable instead of settling for God's best in their life. May we continue to desire God's best in our life. Verse 16 and 17, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
These are the names of the men who, will, who shall divide the land among you as an inheritance. Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. And you shall take one leader of every tribe to divide the land for the inheritance. Now for the sake of time, we're not going to read every name here. But you see a specific name has been given to Moses by God to be a part of this leadership. Right? Imagine Moses calling you, hey, God said your name and for you to be here at this meeting. And again, our God, he is that, that personal of a God. And God gave Moses the specific names of each of these men. And these men were given the task to separate and divide the land. Again, wisdom here. He didn't call a group meeting with two million people and say, hey, this is your land and your property. What? What do you mean we only get this amount of land, right? And the fighting that would break out. So instead, it's just the leaders of each of the tribes, Eliezer the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, the two spiritual leaders and the leaders of the nation, with these 12 leaders of each tribe. It's also interesting because if you've been noticing, verse 18, this word has popped up a few times already, divide the land for the inheritance. How the promise and it was an inheritance for the nation of Israel. David Guzik, he says, as an inheritance, Israel was going to have to take control of the promised land by conquest and by battle. They would have to drive out the Canaanites to take possession. Yet, they should have never considered that the land was given to them because they earned it. It was given to them by God as an inheritance. And inheritances are freely given and not earned. I think there's so much spiritual application here. We know that salvation is freely given to us and not earned. However, there's some fighting for us to do in this life. We don't just float right along into the promised land. There is fighting and sanctification that needs to be taking place in our lives. And it's a battle. It's a con. It is a battle and a fight. Let's turn to Romans chapter 6 and we'll see here just a reminder to us when it comes to sin, when it comes to being a Christian, when it comes to being saved, when it comes to being heaven bound. The beautiful inheritance that we have, yet the battle that we're in and the battle that we have to fight. Romans chapter 6 verse 12. It says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law but under grace. Again sin it doesn't have dominion over us. God's word promises us that with each temptation, God gives us a way out. With every temptation, God gives us a way out. So do we believe him and do we take him at his word or not? We never have to sin. We choose to sin, but we never have to. We need to be reminded salvation, heaven, it's a beautiful inheritance, but we are in the midst of a battle. God, he tells Paul in Acts chapter 26, verse 17 and 18, he tells Paul, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God 
that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Again, God, he's taken us away from the power of Satan and given us to the power of God that we'd have forgiveness of sins and an inheritance. But there's a battle. We have to be continually sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. We must battle sin. It's been coming up the past few teachings. If we say we're struggling, may we be honest about our words. May we be true with our words. Maybe we should change that word struggle to striving. Are we truly striving with sin? Trying to fight and destroy sin. That word struggle to make with great effort to overcome Proceeding with great effort to fight, be violent, be strenuous in effort and exertion. Is that truly the word that belongs there with our relationship with sin? Or should we really be using words like meandering? I'm meandering with sin, right? I'm toying with sin. I'm messing around with sin. Or are we truly in this difficult and violent and strenuous battle with it? Finally, this warning, Ephesians 5, 5, it says, For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Again, if you're given that inheritance, we got a battle. We need to have that conquest for the land. Back to Numbers 34. One last note, verse 29, after the names of these ten men from each of the tribes of Israel. It says, these are the ones that the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance among the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. One sad note here, and we can look right at Numbers 33, verse 55 and 56. The warning that God had left with Moses and for the whole nation was that if they did not drive out the inhabitants of the land before them, it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Again, it's sad because Israel never realized all the land that God had for them. David and Solomon, they were very close, but Israel never realized their full potential. Why? Because they did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. And they constantly had these irritants, these thorns, and this harassment on them and on their children and on their children's children. May we be quick to drive out the inhabitants of our sinful nature and not allow them to rule and reign and dwell among us and within our lives. One sweet blessing is that one day Israel will reach their full potential. When Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom, Israel will be truly the leader in the whole world with Jesus there on the throne. Now we come to chapter 35. We saw the whole land for the whole nation of Israel. Now God looks specifically at the cities for the Levites and the land that God has for them. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan, across from Jericho, saying, Command the children of Israel that they give the Levites cities to dwell in from the inheritance of their possession, and you shall also give the Levites common land around the cities. They shall have the cities to dwell in, and their common land shall be for their cattle, for their herds, and for all their animals. 
We know that in Numbers chapter 18, a couple pages to the left there, Numbers 18, even as we just read the inheritance and the land distributed, the different leaders of each tribe, the tribe of Levi was not mentioned there. Because in Numbers 18 verse 20, it tells us that the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. You see, what God wanted was to spread the Levites all across the land of Israel. He didn't want them to have their own city-state. He didn't want them to have their own area. He wanted them spread across the whole entire nation. Right? When you salt a piece of meat, how do you do it? Do you grab the tablespoon and you literally put it on one part of the meat, right? You put it in the microwave or however you cook your stuff, right? Maybe if that's how you put it on the meat, right? What do you do? You spread it everywhere. You spread it evenly, right? Maybe you get a little fancy. You do your salt bay, right? You go high up and you let the salt go down your elbow. And what God wanted to do was evenly spread the Levites all across the nation. And the same should be said of church leaders and elders within the church, right? We should be spread everywhere and evenly across the church. We shouldn't all be huddling together in one spot, letting all the newcomers and the hurting people just wandering around, having to come to the Levitical city-state. It's also the same for us as believers. God wants us to be that preserving factor spread across our church, across our city, across our state, across our nation. So what did God do? He gave each tribe specific cities for Levites to live in. And the Levites were to have common land around each of the cities for their cattle. And maybe they do a little bit of farming, right? Maybe they wanted to sell Levite jeans and Levite jackets and different things like that in each and every one of the cities. So for us, we're not to just huddle and only be together. Oh, I only hang out with Christians and Christians alone. Is this a Christian sandwich? Is this a Christian shake? Right? Is this a Christian dessert place? No. Dwell around the people. And may we be that preserving factor in our nation, our city, our state, our community. Verse 4 and 5, the common land of the cities, which you will give the Levite, shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. And you shall measure outside the city on the east side, two thousand cubits. On the south side, two thousand cubits. West side, two thousand. North side, two thousand. And the city shall be in the middle. This shall belong to them as common land for the cities. Again, the Levites couldn't just live in the tabernacle or in the temple. They worked there, but they couldn't live in there. That's where God lived. So they'd have these different cities and different tribes for them to live in. Now in verse 6 it says, Now among the cities which you will give to the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge, to which a manslayer may flee. And to these you shall add 42 cities. So all the cities you will give the Levites shall be 48. These you shall give with their common land. And the cities which you will give shall be from the possession of the children of Israel. From the larger tribe you shall give many. From the smaller tribe you shall give few. Each shall give some of its cities to the Levites in proportion to the inheritance that each receives. We know that our God is a just God and he's a fair God. 
So God, he's going to take from the larger tribe with a larger inheritance, and he's going to give them to have more cities for the Levites. Tribe with a smaller inheritance, they would give less cities, right? You can think of if you're a parent, you get one kid to split the food so that the other kid picks, right, what piece they get, and then it's evenly distributed. It's not just that God wants to evenly distribute things because he thinks one tribe is going to have a meltdown because Reuben got more than they did. You see, what God is doing is ensuring that the Levites are spread evenly across the nation and across the populace, where there wouldn't be more Levites in a small tribe and in a small area and less Levites in a big area with a larger population. He wanted the Levites rubbing shoulders with the normal people and not the normal people having to go out to the state of the Levites. Verse 9 now tells us about the cities of refuge. It tells us that God, the Lord, he spoke to Moses saying, verse 10, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. They shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. Again, an ancient city, a group of people that were once slaves over the 40 years in the wilderness, right? They've multiplied, they've gone back down, then they repopulated. They're that 2 million people, and there's no police force, there's no judicial system in a sense. So when someone died, they would have one set of rules. When someone was killed, there'd be another set of rules. And when someone was murdered, there'd be a third set of rules, right? You have just death, you have killing, and you have murder. When someone killed your family member, each family would have someone that would become the avenger within the family. They had to avenge their blood. They wouldn't become Captain America or Iron Man or anything like that. That's not what he's talking about. It's avenging the blood of another human being. We see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now I know some people, they have a difficulty with the death penalty but it is biblical. Again, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Again, we are image bearers. Humans are made in the image of God. And we're to protect one another. We're to love one another. We are to care for one another. So if someone killed someone by accident, they had certain cities evenly laid out. Again, God being fair and just. Cities evenly laid out throughout Israel where they had to run to and then they would wait there. These weren't people that were running away from the law. This isn't someone that killed someone and now they're running and hiding from the law. And it's something in a western, right, where it's six lawless cities. Instead, they were running to these cities to wait for a fair justice and a fair trial to be served. 
We're going to see in a moment how it would require two or more witnesses for someone to be put to death for murder. We'll look now, verse 13 through 15. And of the cities which you give, you shall have six cities of refuge. You shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan. Three cities you shall appoint in the land of Canaan, which will be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger, and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. So citizen, stranger, sojourner, anyone in the land of Israel. You kill someone accidentally, you don't have to just die or be put to death by the avenger. You had a city of refuge that you could run to. You can just write these down in Joshua chapter 20, verse 7 through 8, that tells us the exact cities of refuge. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 3, this tells us about the different roads that were built and maintained to these six cities of refuge. Now in verse 16, God begins to lay out for Moses the difference between a man slayer and a murderer. Verse 16, but if he strikes him with an iron implement so that he dies, he is a murderer. And the murderer shall surely be put to death. Again, the murderer shall surely be put to death. It's not the killer that shall surely be put to death. There are some people that they believe Christians should just lay down. If your family is being murdered, just sit there and watch. That's what Jesus would do, right? Not the case whatsoever. A murderer is one thing. A killer is something else. Something different. Happens in war. It happens in protecting your own family. Protecting your own life. All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. Murder is the sin here. So in verse 17 through 19, it tells us, If he strikes him with a stone in the hand, by which one could die, and he does die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Or if he strikes him with a wooden hand weapon by which one could die, and he does die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. The avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. Again, a little bit of common sense here, but if you kill someone who murders someone else, murder is going to be looked at as something you don't want to do. Because if you murder someone, you die right away, right? If you go to the Middle East, certain places where they have, I believe it's called Sharia law, right? You steal something and you get your hand chopped off. See a bunch of people that look like pirates, right? You're not going to want to rob or steal anything around there, right? It comes at a price. It comes at a cost. Not saying that's what we should be doing, but it's just the warning here. That God is trying to protect human life because human life, it's what's most valuable here on this side of eternity. Because our souls go from this life to the next. So depending on the instrument that would kill someone, they would be judged as a murderer or simply a manslayer who would have to run and wait in that city of refuge. So if you had a stone, the types of stone that would kill people and you kill them, you're put to death, right? It doesn't talk about weapons or 9mm, 40mm, anything like that, right? It's just a stone weapon, a wooden weapon, things like that. Verse 20 and 21, not only is it the weapon, but it's also the heart and the intents of the person, the premeditation of the person. Verse 20, if he pushes him out of hatred or while lying in wait, and he hurls something at him so that he dies... 
or an enmity, he strikes him with his hand so that he dies. The one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer, and the avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. So again, it's the intent of the heart and the premeditation. Were they waiting? Were they hiding? Waiting to jump on the person and kill him. Verse 22, however, if he pushes him suddenly without enmity, right? He laughs at a joke and he pushes him and he falls down and dies, right? Or he throws anything at him without lying in wait. He's playing catch and he pops him in the head, right? Or uses a stone by which a man could die, throwing it at him without seeing him. Grab a rock. Don't throw it when you don't look, right, where you're going. I remember serving at a camp. There was this kid. Uh, at that point, he was a kid. Now he's a man, right? Poor guy. It was his birthday. He was clearing out rocks while they were mowing the field. So he just grabbed the rock and he threw it. And then he just heard, Psh, and he broke the windshield of a car, right, at, at the same time. So don't throw rocks without looking where they're going. Probably in general, just don't throw rocks, period, right? So if someone would throw a rock and he doesn't see where it goes and it kills someone that was not his enemy, he kills someone that he was not seeking their harm, verse 24, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled, and he shall remain there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. So you have to live in this new city. You live in this new city filled with Levites until the day of the death of the high priest. Then you could go back to living wherever you were before. Verse 26, but if the manslayer at any time goes outside the limits of the city of refuge where he fled and the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of his city of refuge and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. Right, we know Jesus, he's our refuge. He is our high priest as well. He's already passed away. He's resurrected. Dwell and remain in him. Verse 29. And all these things shall be a statute of judgment to you throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. Plural. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. Again, something so different than our day and age. You couldn't pay someone a certain amount and just get away with murder, literally, right? You couldn't get away with that. You had to pay for the penalty of that sin. Verse 32, you shall take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest. You couldn't pay someone off to go hide and do whatever you want. Justice had to be served. Verse 33 and 34, again, a great warning for us in our nation. So you shall not pollute the land where you are. For blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore do not defile the land in which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. Again, 
unjudged murderers, they defile a nation. They destroy a nation. When justice does not happen in a nation, there is a blot and there is a stain that just grows and just messes up the entire world. So may we be praying for our nation, right? So much injustice, so much abortion, so many babies being murdered that have done absolutely nothing wrong. Most of the times, moms that just don't want to deal with it. Women and men that don't want to have to deal with the repercussions of their sexual sin. So may we just be praying for our nation, how polluted it must be with all of the injustice and all of the blood that has been shed. Finally, chapter 36, chapter 36, verse 1 and 2. Now the chief fathers of the families of the children of Gilead, the son of Matri, the son of Manasseh, of the families of the sons of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders, the chief fathers, and the children of Israel. And they said, The Lord commanded my Lord Moses to give the land as an inheritance by the lot to the children of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. We looked at this back in Numbers 27 where these daughters were worried about the inheritance of their father. They wanted to see their father's inheritance in the promised land. So they came, they brought this up to Moses. Moses wasn't sure what to do, so he prayed, cried out to God, and God gave them the answer that the inheritance could be given to the daughters if there were no father and no sons to have that inheritance. Now verse 3 and 4, it tells us, Now, if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the children of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and they'll be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it's going to be taken from the lot of our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the children of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So their inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. So they bring up this concern. They're worried that if the inheritance is given to these ladies, it creates another problem. Guys are just going to want to marry those ladies to bring even more land and more inheritance into their family. They're concerned about the trade-offs here and what's not right or what's fair. So verse 5, Then Moses commanded the children of Israel, according to the word of the Lord, saying, What the tribe of the sons of Joseph speaks is right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, Let them marry whom they think best, but they may marry only within the family of their father's tribe. Now, before you think this is weird or something strange, right? right? It's within their tribe, within their state, within the area that's been given to their inheritance. God's not telling them, go and marry your cousin or anything strange like that, right? Verse 7, So the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe, for every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be the wife of one of the family of her father's tribe, so that the children of Israel may each possess the inheritance of his fathers. Thus no inheritance shall change hands from one tribe to another, but every tribe of the children of Israel shall keep its own inheritance. 
Just as the Lord commanded Moses, so did the daughters of Zelophehad, for Mala, Terza, Hagla, Milcha, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to the sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the families of the children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's family. These are the commandments and the judgments which the Lord commanded the children of Israel by the hand of Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. So there is the end of Numbers, right? This book of wanderings. And may we remember there is a battle in front of us. There's a conquest, right, laying in front of us. It's not a conquest for our salvation. We're not fighting for our salvation or fighting for our spot in heaven. No, we are fighting against sin in our own life. We're fighting against the flesh in our own life. We need to labor to enter into that rest, as Hebrews tells us. There's a battle going on in our minds, and we need to take each thought captive and bring it before the Lord. And as we've reviewed the book of Numbers so many times, right now, are we obeying God or are we disobeying God? What are the orders he's given you? What are the boundaries he's given you? Are you being obedient to him? Do you have faith in him? Do you have trust in him? Or are you being disobedient to God? Are you making decisions based on fear, fear of what you're missing out? Are you making decisions based on fear, the fear of men? What is this person going to think? What is my family going to think? What is my coworker, my boss, this person that I like, this person that I have romantic thoughts about them? What are they going to think if I'm obedient to God in this? So may we continue to be men and women of faith, obeying God in each area of our life, trusting the boundaries that he has laid in his word. Because when we disobey God, as we looked at the book of Numbers, bad things happen, right? Thank God the earth doesn't open and we get swallowed, right? Thank God fiery serpents don't come out and start biting people. However, the wages of sin is death. So may we continue to grow in that obedience to our Father.